This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this case. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Well, it's finally here, the 2020 Christmas special of the Wigs. With the aid of a bottle or two of French champagne, not from yours truly, I might add, the Wigs bring a close to the legal year with a discussion of three interesting legal controversies. Firstly, the Lawyer X scandal in Victoria, a tale of what happened when a famous criminal defence barrister turned rogue and began secretly working for the police against her clients. Second up, the Wigs discuss a recent decision of the New South Wales Court of Appeal in HDMI Global Specialty SE versus Wong Kanna, number three PTY Limited, concerning insurance policies and the pandemic. Very much one for the contract law and statutory interpretation aficionados. I know you're out there. Lastly, the Whigs discuss a needlessly controversial New South Wales government policy for the depenalisation of drug possession offences. Strap yourselves in and get ready for a somewhat lengthy, somewhat rowdy, end-of-year Christmas special. Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, live from uh, wherever we are recording from today, I forget the name of the chambers that you guys operate out of, but it's fantastic. Uh, Black Chambers. Black Chambers. Uh, It's time for the Wigs uh, Christmas special. Yeah. Deck the halls, everyone. Um, we've got the fabulous Emmanuel Kirksharian. I've forgotten how to intro the show. Anyway, Emmanuel Look, Kirksharian. I, I, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to pause your introduction. And, and take and, that call. And, no, and turn that call over. But open this lovely bottle of champagne. Lovely. Here we go. Given that this is our Christmas special. Let's hopefully go. The, uh, Wait for the noise. I can just... Oh, oh I was that gonna is ins- real. I was going to insert a fake one for you, but that's fine. It does the job. I think that's better. I love it. I appreciate uh, this it. This is courtesy of Lua, a barrister on my floor who keeps losing bets to me. Um, and it's kept me in French Champagne for a better part of a year. Thank you, Lua. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, Lua. Lua. Shout out to Lua. Okay, Felicity Graham. That's me. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you. Well Jim. done. Another year. Uh, what a fantastic year it's been. I mean, has it? Not really. And the deputy <laughs> mayor himself. Hey, Jim. Good to be here. I've got a what? beer and a glass of champagne and a pack of Doritos. Oh my gosh, it's party Very time! Happy. Oh, the Doritos, great. So we get to hear you eating halfway mm-hmm. through. That's great. Oh, cheers, As to everyone. Usual. Great. Do we have to do cheers? No, cheers. COVID safe. Cheers. There we go. Let's share glasses as well. Already. Hmm. Yeah. Oh man, Manny, you should win bets more often. It's good. Yeah, yeah it's good. All right. Look. This is the Christmas special. All right, last year we had it at the Como Kitchen. It's true. But this this year... Um, oh, Manny, you just finished your chips, mate. We're good. We're good. Get the crunch going. Um, and now this year it's no different, except we're not at the Como Kitchen, but the, uh, you know, all bets are off. This is the crazy episode. This is the one where we make up laws... We, don't, we pretend that we don't know what we do know what we're talking about. We just, you know, let it loose and the facts be damned. No, get drunk. No facts. This is just, you know, pure moot wigs. Okay? Anti wigs. Can I right. just warn all our listeners that next year we're going to do an April Fool's episode and we're actually going to do that? Yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> warn them now. now you're warned. Yeah, so you so so that's constructive knowledge. Constructive yeah. knowledge. Okay. Now, we're going to go into topic number one, so let's get there before the show gets too crazy. Manuel Kirkusharian, please, take it away. Uh, Lawyer X is my topic. Okay. Um, So, where do we begin? Nicola Gobbo is the niece of the former Victorian Governor and Supreme Court Justice 
Sir James Gobbo. Um, she was uh, quite a successful law student. She was ordered. She received first class honours for legal ethics and professional conduct. <laughs> uh, and before she became a practicing lawyer, however. She was registered as a police informant. Mm. So Didn't first she do class, some kind of thesis about this topic? I was going to say, topic? what was her thesis on? Uh, did she? On ethics, know. was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She, she got her honours in ethics. Mm. That's, that's, yeah. Can I just ask, did you say she became a police informant before she became a lawyer? Be- before she was admitted, oh. as a, or before she was practising at least. I didn't know that. Um, but it took 10 years for her to be given an official title uh, as an informant called Informer 3838. In 1998, at the age of 25, the tender age of 25, Gobbo became the youngest woman ever admitted at the Victorian Bar, uh, and she did pretty well. And within four years, um, the gangland war had begun in 1999, and she, that is, Gobbo, was a really a key player in, in the defence of many individuals involved and charged as a result of that war. Between 2002 and and 2002, um, she represented a 16-year-old who was charged with attempted murder and 67 counts of armed robbery and so on. She got good results for all of these people. She represented Tony Mockbell. Um, I understand there's been that Channel 9 show about Tony Mockbell, is there? The, whatever that's called. Oh, yeah, won the Oscar, um, I think. Yeah, so he... So no, Underworld no. or... Underbelly. 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 Um, Under what, yeah. Mr Mockbell is presently serving 30 years for drug trafficking, uh, although I say presently because that may well... Be overturned. Be overturned because the Royal Commission lawyers, and I'll come to the Royal Commission, found that his matters may have been quote, may have been affected by the conduct of Ms Gobbo as well as the conduct of the Victoria Police. Along Did with 1,010 other people's convictions. Right. Or yeah. convictions, I think. Yeah. Maybe not people. Hey, no, people. Mm. I think it's people. Yeah, I think it's people. Yeah. Well, Does the research yeah. say anything about how, like, uh, she... Is it just pure luck that she is the underworld mob war uh, barrister at this particular time? And the police needed information. Like, how did? How, well, she was an she informant, informant before. Before. She, so how she does came it? There. How, so how does she get the clients that are so? Like, sounds like it's she like joined the KGB or something at uni. Yeah, I mean that's that's what it sounds like. It's it's uh, as if she and, and it, gets in there. And there was an instruction to pursue this 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 client base. Well, uh, I don't know whether it was an instruction to pursue this client base or whether it was just a natural fit for what she was doing. Mm-hmm. And of course her handlers must have been prodding her in some way mm, to, mm. to get involved in these sorts of things. And once you've done one, once you're in that space, mm. the doors are open to you, you know. It's so funny. And if you are apparently procuring good <clears throat> outcomes for your clients, mm. then you're likely to get Right. You know, have them have them as your represent have them ask you to represent them. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that she comes from this big legal family. I hadn't realised that. And I'd always sort of thought about her, I guess, that she must have been some sort of outsider, mm. you know, to the law, sort of operating on the edges a bit, but not at all. This, no. She's I mean, a blue blood. Blue, well, yeah, but sure, she was certainly from a legal family and certainly had that kind of um, connection to the law, in it, so, which is all by which to say that one hopes that, one would imagine rather, that she had instilled in her that ethical 
background that clearly... Well, her master seems to think that she did. Or honours, yeah. Honours, sorry. So what did she do? What, what's, the, what's the guts of it? So in February... Sorry, in 2014, 2015, it emerged that she had been used by... Well, sorry, that a person had been used by the police, the Victorian police, as a police informer. And there's just so much that she did in that role. But the key point is this. She's representing people and she's informing on them at the same time. She's representing people... Uh, and representing people who are giving evidence against, or helping people who are giving evidence against those people. Anyway, after after 2015, these reports come out. IBAC makes a report. Her Who's name IBAC? All right, stand by, listeners. It's the Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Broad. Commission. <laughs> the Victorian Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission. Uh, after their report was given in 2015, her name remains suppressed. Uh, some of the details remain suppressed. In November 2017, the Court of Appeal of the Supreme Court of Victoria ordered that all of this should be disclosed, all of her conduct and so on should be disclosed. That was uh, stayed pending an appeal to the High Court, and the High Court unanimously granted special... Sorry, said that special leave should be revoked in the matter. Uh, it found that Gobbo's actions enacting as counsel for convicted for persons whilst informing against them were, quote, fundamental and appalling breaches of her obligations as counsel to her clients and her duties to the court. Is that when her name was actually revealed? So in the judgment, it still says, where I've been saying her, it says EF because the case was A, B, A, B and C, D, EF and C, D... Right, right. ..and so on. Um, so it was still not revealed, but once... That judgment was published. That's when everyone found out. Yeah. Mm. A lot of people knew, and I remember seeing things um, like on social media where people were linking her profile and her name to stories about this. Yeah. So very much disseminated out oh. prior to it being... On social sort of, media? Yeah, legally allowed to be said. Oh, yeah, big time. Yeah. Fair income. Yeah. It was certainly an open secret amongst oh. the legal profession by the time the High Court appeal yeah. was lodged. Right. Um, but the High Court was scathing. It said... Quote, the maintenance of the integrity of the justice system demands that the information be disclosed and the propriety of each convicted person's conviction be re-examined in light of the information. So what was happening was that there was an attempt for this information not to be disclosed. Um, The argument was, in short, that it put her at so much risk. Um, which seems a little weird to me because if it was if it was the case that everybody in the legal space knew, everybody knew. She's already at risk. I mean, I mean, the underworld, she, the underworld yeah. must have known. Uh, and one suspects that the police were very keen on this not being released well, yeah. for at least one legitimate reason, which is if you're going to have people who are informants, you've got to be pretty sure that you can say to them, look, we're never going to release your name." because otherwise you're discouraging police informants. Um, but there's also sort of illegitimate reasons in the sense that you're hiding something that on the face of it is pretty dodgy. Mm. But, but thirdly, it means that <laughs> we could have uh, serial killers walking the streets within a matter of months, right? I well, mean, potentially, I mean, who have not, you know, the, whether or not they're but the high court guilty in or not. The extraordinary in. statement in that case went so far 
as to say, quote, the prosecution of each convicted person was corrupted in a manner which debased fundamental premises of the criminal justice system. And so that statement, and as Felicity said, there's about a thousand, there's more than a thousand people who might be in that category, is a huge statement from the High Court of Australia that these convictions are at risk. Mm -hmm. And at risk, if not, should be prima facie kicked out. Mm. Uh, And we're talking about what Victoria might consider its worst criminals who have been locked up for decades. Yeah. That... um, that are potentially going to be released. So why did she do this? She's provided some explanations in public comments that she's made about it. So she says, first of all, she felt morally compelled, effectively, to provide information because she says that she was living in this world where people that she was acting for or people that she'd been introduced to were being shot and murdered on a weekly basis and she was being pre-warned about things taking place. And she'd become and friends with a lot of these people, hadn't she? I remember totally, seeing like footage of Carl Williams' wedding, yeah. making a speech or singing a song yeah. or doing something. Yeah, and so she said to not do anything when you have that type of knowledge, she says, is something that I had morally that she had an issue with. But how do you get to the and point then, in a client relationship where clients are telling you that? Well, that's right. Like, mm. I, I query that, I've got to say, as an explanation. Yeah, I also query that My as clients an don't tend to tell me their next criminal endeavour. No. <laughs> no. And that, I mean, what it suggests is I mean, I suppose it might not does. be that. It might be a client telling you that they're aware that someone else is going to get involved in criminality, that they've heard that there's a hit out on a witness or something like that. But I don't really accept that as a a realistic explanation for her conduct in circumstances where she informed over many years and about about content that had nothing to do with someone being at imminent risk of harm. Because, you know, as a lawyer, you get these sort of law and order scenarios every so often, right? Where, mm. and often it starts off with the client who tells you that, uh, that they're going to kill themselves because they got refused bail. And then you go back to your boss and you say, is that privilege? What should I do? Should I tell or, the jail authorities that exactly. my client's at a suicide risk? Yeah. And that comes up. It comes up occasionally. And every so often you get some other moral quandary situation such as might feature in shows like that. But I don't really accept that she just happened to get a thousand of them. No, and so the other then, and then explanation <laughs> that she gave was that privilege doesn't apply to everything, and this is kind of consistent with a theory that you know she's socialising with her clients because she poses this other example about where she'd informed on a client based on information that she'd received during a conversation that occurred at 1am in the morning when the client was really drunk and behaving inappropriately. And she said... um, Sounds like she was behaving really inappropriately. Yeah, she said, you know, not everything that a client says is automatically covered by privilege and I don't know that anyone could legitimately say that a conversation that took place at 1am where he's blind, drunk and definitely behaving in an appropriate fashion could be the subject of privilege. Which I just, you know, I, I think there's a real problem with that analysis as well because 
There's going to be a certain category of content of communication that is covered by legal professional privilege, and maybe we should talk a bit more about what that sort of means and the scope of it. But then there's also just the fact that the relationship between a lawyer and their client is a relationship of confidence where the lawyer represents to the client that they can have an expectation mm. of confidentiality when they're speaking with their lawyer. Well, if and she that, continued these relationships, That's right. right. So if your client does... Say you make a foolish decision to go for a drink with your client and they tell you they're planning um, a gangland hit and you decide that you've got to hand it to the police. Well, I think that's the end of the lawyer-client relationship if you do that, whereas she continued. That's right. Yeah. 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 But also, I think that even if your client's not giving you that kind of information, that the client has a genuine expectation that communications Mm. are going to fall within that relationship of confidence and be covered by an obligation not to just tell people about what has been said... In circumstances where the law recognises like these notions of not just actually what's happening, but also perceptions, yeah. and but also, I mean, her, her clients were heavies, and you know, there's a level that one gets to in one's practice as a barrister when you're dealing with clients sophisticated enough that they're not going to make those sorts of errors in talking to you unless that you've formed some sort Absolutely. of relationship with them where they feel like they can talk to you yeah. like that. Mm. And so either it's an act of inducement or you really have that relationship yeah. with them, you know. And it's, and if, you, if, if it's the latter, you only get that once. Mm. As you say, Stephen, you, you just go back and report it to the police and get on with it. Mm. Um, but in terms of, Flick, to address the, the where the issues of privilege end. So you are privileged in your discussion with your lawyers insofar as you're seeking advice about a potential matter, about a live matter, uh, or about some sort of legal issue. Beyond that, you're not privileged, uh, strictly. But And you're not privileged if you are, say, planning a crime with your lawyer or seeking advice about planning a crime with your lawyer or with not, or you know from your lawyer but in terms of discussions that occur in the context of the relationship that are outside that you wouldn't ordinarily have privilege but again you which which any sophisticated client which is to say any somebody who's a big time drug dealer would be aware of and would not be having those conversations with you unless they considered you your their friend and if you've used your position as their lawyer to become their friend, then really you're bringing the profession into disrepute Mm. and you're you're doing all of that as it is. But what are you doing continuing to be their lawyer? Mm. Yeah, exactly. Because leaking that information, even if it's not privileged, is inconsistent with the relationship. That's right. There's an immediate conflict of interest. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So what crimes has she potentially committed, do you think? Well, so, clearly so, privilege is like a lawful obligation on her. She's breached that, it would seem. But is that criminal? So sort of I, we need to be a bit careful about that because there's an investigation. So the Royal Commission has reported um, and has recommended the appointment of a special investigator in part to establish whether there's been a criminal offence committed by her. Um, and also by the police, right? Because they've yeah. incited her or encouraged her or acted in concert with her yeah yeah 
And so, because then you, you, you take an oath to the court when you when you sign the when you sign the registry, get your name. Is that what's yeah? You do. Yeah, take you oath. do. You take absolutely. It. Yeah. So was that? I mean, I, I don't know that it turns on the oath that she gave to the court. To my mind, it's well. Let's let's speak in the hypothetical. If a person was representing certain, if a barrister was representing certain things to a court and to their client. <clears throat> Whilst at the same time acting in a conflict of interest with against that client's interest, and manipulating by those facts the results of the court, that would, in my view, amount to an attempt or an actual perversion of the course of justice. Now, I don't say that's what she did, but in, if that if that is what her conduct amounted to, then it would be that. Mm. Uh offence that potentially might arise is fraud or dishonestly obtaining a benefit by deception. As so, in her fees. Exactly. Right, right, right. Yeah. Potentially. Because she's representing to the client that she's a legal practitioner who's providing them... Who's taken with, an oath to the court so you can with trust With independent yeah. legal advice. And who's providing them with a service that... You know, carries with it all the aspects um, of the fiduciary obligation that she has, but she's not really doing that. Deceptively gaining a financial advantage. It's mm. a bit yeah. of an impl- it's very implicit sort of the deception, though, isn't it? I mean, and you'd need to look closely at what so what she did in any particular case, wouldn't you? What about when you so hand over the when you hand over the credit card implicitly, representing that you're authorised to use the credit card? Or bank card. Yeah. It's kind of a weak way to do it. Though. Yeah. I, I accept that it's there, but... They, <laughs> and, you know, they got what's-his-name on tax fraud. Yeah, Al Capone. Yeah. They got Al Capone on tax fraud. It's mm. that kind of thing. I say it's a weak way to get it in the sense that she may have got some financial benefit from what she did. She, she may not have whatever, but it's not... It's bigger fish not than that. Not the essence of what she's done. This That's is huge. I mean, you know, the essence of what she's done is so unusual... Yeah. There's no tailored criminal really, offence for it. It just looks yeah. like in every Hollywood movie, this is this is the, you know, have you ever seen Carlito's Way? This was Sean Penn's character. You know, like, mm. it's just like, it just seems, so as a non-lawyer, such an obvious potential crime that could occur. It's a first in Australia, though, at least yeah. in terms of it being exposed, right, Manny? Like, there's no suggestion that it's happened before, is there? Yeah, well, they broadened the scope of the terms of the Royal Commission because they received some information early on that suggested that there might have been other lawyers that yeah. Victorian police had used in this way uh, as human sources. But the Commission, although they said... They sort of couched it in terms where they said, look, we don't have all of the information that we could potentially have to assess this question. They said, I think, Manny, that they didn't find any evidence that relationships of confidence had been breached in the way that Gobbo had breached her relationship of confidence. And they looked at, for example, also some other categories like nurses and a few others. Um, But... Well, how many other professions have confidentiality? It just it would just well, be doctors no, and okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, fiduciary obligations, which is like this kind of concept of having a higher obligation of like loyalty and sort of no conflicts of interest and things like that, exists in a whole lot of different sort of contexts. Like, I think accountants have that, don't they? All sorts of professions. Journalists do. have certain. If you're a trustee, you have it. People in finance. Do you? What happens if you break confidentiality and you're a journalist? Nothing. You get fired. 
Yeah, I don't think journalists have it. Sort of vis-a-vis sources, do they? Yeah, I think there's certain recognised privilege. That's an impl- oh, there is in statutes. That's true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but this I always is, thought that was like an implied. Oh, you can trust me. I'm a journalist. Like, I mean, it, it professional go- kind of rep thing, isn't it? Yeah, but I always yeah. thought because a lawyer takes an oath to the court, it's there must be some sort of, you know, legislation that enshrines that that would make it a crime to break it. It's but the duplicity, we, though. It is the fiduciary kind of aspect. Of fiduciary might not be the right word, but it's the idea that propone might you be the are, right word. You are saying <laughs> you are saying to your client, <laughs> "I'm acting in your interests," and you're not. Yeah, right. And that's the, that's the essence. Yeah. Of it, well, that's fraud. You know? And that's yeah. That's you know. Um, so the Royal Commission recommended that this that an investigator uh, be appointed, which would be a fascinating job to have, wouldn't it? It'd be such. Well, if there's anyone there listening, Manny's available to take the You have a conflict of interest in this one, Manny, based on this episode. No, no, I, I, I don't know. I'd act on. You know, I'm trying to be careful about what I'm saying, um, and what, and I'm careful about what I think. But the commission recommended that the person have a full and un, full and unfettered access to the human source files to a, anticipate whether, sorry, to investigate rather whether there'd been a breach of confidentiality or privilege uh, in any other ways, and whether such information was used or disseminated by the Victorian Police. Mm. So there's still some ongoing. Mm. Investigation to be done, but people have been acquitted already. A bloke called Farouk Oman, he was the first person to be acquitted. Um, he was found guilty of being a getaway driver in 2002 of a murder of an underworld figure. Um, and there was a petition made to the Attorney General Jill Hennessy. Uh, who'd granted a petition of mercy on the basis that there may have been a miscarriage of justice arising out of Nicola Dobbo's conduct. And when did that happen, Manny? Um, he walked free, so I don't know when the petition was granted, but he walked free on the 26th of July 2019. Mm. Um, so 2002 he was mm. in prison, 2019 he walked free. Because the commission was really scathing of the police in terms of the delay that they had engaged in once they were kind of properly... I mean, they should have been on notice that this was all wrongful conduct um, or improper conduct at the time. I mean, it's just so obviously in that category. But having been properly on notice that this was a real issue after they there had been a series of confidential uh, inquiries and advice given, I think kind of ironically, one of, or maybe not ironically, but... The main trigger for this coming out seems to be that in 2011, a police officer was being prosecuted for certain crimes and he issued a subpoena to the police for certain documents which, if production was complied with, could potentially have disclosed Nicola Gobbo's identity as a human source. But acquitted him. That's why he asked for him, right? So he assisted him in some way. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Presumably, so, yeah, he's yeah, yeah. subpoenaing these documents to try and assist in his defence. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And the police kind of stalled on providing any documents, but ultimately, as a result of that, for the first time, 
sought some legal advice about the situation. For the first time? Yeah, and that was another yeah. aspect that where they were really criticised and the Commission said... So the police don't get legal advice. They failed to seek legal advice on these matters. And really made a finding that they didn't do that because they didn't want to be told. Yeah, sometimes they you don't want to They didn't want to be told How that high they should the police be doing this. Do we know? Was okay. this like authorised at Commissioner level? Or? So... The report, I mean, I haven't read the whole report, but the report mentioned that at least 100 police and per- police personnel knew about it. The commissioner must have known. Must. Um, must have, yes. So, and quite high ranks. So. Yeah. I mean, if you're prosecuting people like Mockbell, that that goes up to the commissioner level, yeah. even if it's just a note about it, you know. Um, but to show you, to give you an example of, of, and this is somebody who's been acquitted, so we can talk about it. Um, there was a bloke who had been charged with trafficking a commercial quantity of meth and he was represented by Gobbo until he was found guilty. At the same time, Gobbo was talking to someone called Mr Cooper and she was acting for Mr Cooper who became a star prosecution witness against the bloke who was acquitted after being paid in exchange for evidence by the police with the knowledge and, and involvement of Gobbo. So, Manny, do you understand how the police managed to keep it a secret for so long in prosecuting all these people based on information that she'd provided? Well, I mean... Because they're not calling her as a witness, obviously, because mm. they're, they're hiding it and they're getting information from her and using it to arrest people and so on. But how did they hide it for so long? Well, I think it was just... It, it's... <clears throat> Paradoxically, because of the position of a trust that I think a barrister has with their clients, it, it's easy to hide. So, for example, they're not calling her to be a witness. Because why would you? Well, why you don't have to. So you use her to act as somebody's legal advisor, get them to cooperate with the police and incriminate somebody. At the same time, you're acting for the person that you're getting them to incriminate. So you're across the brief... You're across the defence. You can tell the person you're acting for, these are the hit points you've got to hit in your statement. Yeah, exactly. Give that to the coppers. Mm. And nowhere in the police records do they record who's acting for. And, you know, we, we don't know when we get statements in briefs who settled that statement, whether there's been a lawyer behind it and mm. so on. You just don't know. You, you don't even think 90% of the time to ask for it and you definitely don't think to ask for it if you're the person who's acting for the other person. Mm. So you've, you've affected the cover-up by being involved at both sides of it. Um, so that's the sort of... It, it's, it really is... It, it brings home to me, at least, the sort of responsibility that we have and, and, the, and the power that we have that we're not, perhaps not cognizant of in our day-to-day lives... And how it can be abused. And I was in Melbourne shortly after the High Court judgment came down for a, for a birthday party. I was talking to this bloke, and I said, "You know, I'm a, I'm a." He said, "What do you do?" I'm, you know, I'm a barrister. I do mainly crime. Weeks. You know. Is it the weeks? I'm on the <laughs> weeks. And he's like, he's like, "Oh, so you're one of those dog?" <laughs> he says, oh, and I'm swear like, you oh. and you're like, yes, I am. I'm like, and I'm like, no, <laughs> mate, no. Um, and it really shows you the harm that has been done Absolutely. to the justice system as a result. There is a deep mistrust, as there would be, mm. because how do you know? Yeah. And, you know, all of us would have had experiences, particularly at ALS, you know, in our early days, where you have the client or the clients who think that you're working with the cops. 
Yeah. You know? And yeah. they're often kind of paranoid and suspicious people that have sort of problems with authority mm-hmm. and entrenched attitudes in yep. that regard. And they'll basically accuse you of being, you know, in cahoots with the prosecutor. Yeah. And you kind of laugh it off and assure them that you're not. But now we've got this real life example of someone who actually was. And mm. it's out there in the papers every day. Yeah. So it definitely can't help. I mean, it makes me reflect on just the fundamental importance of the role of the defence lawyer because you've got this individual who's being prosecuted by the state. They don't have anyone except their lawyer. Mm. They don't have anyone to expose the wrongdoing of the police. They don't have anyone to advance their theory of the case and their instructions about the matter. They've only got their defence lawyer and here you have an instance of the police interfering in that relationship and making sure that that person's actually not on their side. Mm. Mm. Um I mean, that's the beginning of tyranny where people will kind of have no defense against the state. Mm. It's just yeah. like her betrayal is so much bigger than those individuals. Yeah. Like she betrayed this kind of structural foundation of the rule of law. Yep. It's just so appalling. Yep. I hope she's locked up. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I'm buoyed by the fact that there has been a Royal Commission that it's identified at least a thousand convictions that might be at issue. And it's been publicised. I mean, yeah, that gives me some hope that the systems in place work even when they don't. And I hope that's not tremendously naive. Mm. And I don't buy for a minute that it's noble cause corruption. I think at best it's a personality disorder. Yeah. At worst, it's for the money. Maybe she loved the intrigue. Yeah. You know, she another, loved the double crossing. Yeah, another Whatever. kind of explanation that's been posed is that maybe she was worried that the police had something on her. And that she was... Well, they did. She'd been an informant since uni. <laughs> That's right. I mean, she, yeah, in, but in, as in, in that, like, these that. friendships... Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. These friendships with these criminal world players, you know, how does she really explain what she did and so on? And, and also put to her this sort of proposition that, well, maybe she was doing it because she'd been involved in criminal offences, yeah, that um, she needed to kind of basically keep the police on side so they wouldn't go after her. That's, that's all a symptom, right? That's all a symptom of whatever the underlying reason is for this behaviour because, okay, she's she, you know, she's doing these things with her clients so the police have incriminating information about that. It's kind of the same problem, right? right? Like, she's ended up doing those things with, the, with her clients completely inappropriately. She was an informant at uni. Like, I just see a common pattern. It's a bit chicken in the egg. Yeah, I don't know. It's a bit subjective, but, like, you know, because it could be any, any, could mean anything. Like, what, has she resigned from the profession? Is her life at risk? She's been struck off, right? No, no, no. no at the time. Well, <clears throat> one of the recommendations is that the bar take her off the roll because she remains there symbolically. Mm. And I, for some reason, I think... Like, she'll never I, get a practising certificate. But no, <laughs> but she remains on the roll. Yeah, okay, um, so she hasn't actually been struck off the roll. Wow, yeah. that's incredible. What I, mean, what I mean by that is, like, you know, her thought process at the time, does she resign from the profession? Meanwhile, there's a gangland war going on. People are getting murdered. Has she been told... You have to represent this person and this person and this person. Her lives are at risk if she doesn't and resign. You, I don't know. I'm just making this she's up. She's gone too deep. Yeah. Sort of I mean, there could be out. that. There could, could be that. that. So who knows? Mm. I know? mean, let's not forget that there are criminals who are brilliant. There are police officers who are brilliant and manipulative. And the position that we play is one where the risks of being corrupted <clears throat> by force by those around us are manifest every day, particularly mm. when you get into some of those thorny matters. Everyone's got an agenda and they're trying to play you. 
Mm. And it's not, you know, as much as I buck up at how difficult, sorry, at, at, at her damage to the criminal justice system, there is a small part of me that goes, geez, I hope I'm never in a situation like that, you know. I mean, all corruption, it seems, starts with small things yeah. and kind of small compromises that people make mm. and it all leads on to something. Yeah. I mean, this makes me think <clears throat> of those lawyers that you know who have all of these very hard and fast rules like you never drink with your clients, you never do this, you never do that. Yeah. It's probably not a bad approach. <laughs> you never start a podcast. <laughs> hey, can I shift the discussion to talk about some of the issues relating to the culture of the police and how that was a systemic factor or is a systemic factor in terms of why this kind of thing can go on and for so long? Because you can, but I need some champagne first. Okay. And we're just going to keep while, this, while is, oh, this is Christmas, Christmas baby. <laughs> this is the Christmas set. No cuts. No Grinchy. No just pure. And by the way, we're live streaming right now. I've stuck a camera up. You didn't tell you Oh, weeks. my God. We are live right now. I'm just joking. I haven't got pants. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. He never wears pants. <laughs> Take it away. All right. Uh, <laughs> Where were no, we? The culture of the police. <laughs> yes. Okay. So one of the things, as I mentioned, that the commission was really critical of was the delay that the police um, engaged in in terms of failing to notify people that they might be affected by this, Um, certainly at a point after which, you know, the High Court had given their judgment, these inquiries had happened and so on. Um, And the police had sort of tried to pose... I'm concerned for Gobbo's safety at, before her identity had been revealed. I know as, this is a very serious topic. Oh, week. guys, I'm trying to say <laughs> something Lawrence serious. Stephen Lawrence is trying to eat a, yeah, just chip passing a bag of chips. It's a hard can I, can I break? No. F***ing Lawrence. I'll put a swear beep Come on. I was being totally silent. No one had heard a thing. The, the listeners can hear. She was on a roll. Felicity, she was about please. to really. What's going on? What is going on with the police? Tell us. Yeah, so, but the commission basically said, look, yeah, okay, maybe that was part of it. But also their kind of refusal to properly engage in an appropriate response to Notifying the, the prisoners fallout. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Also came likely mm. from a desire to avoid reputational damage and a, yeah. de- a desire to avoid external inquiries and scrutiny yeah. and a desire to avoid judicial criticism, a desire to avoid appeals against convictions. Yeah. And really also commented on how police officer after police officer popped into the witness box and refused <clears throat> to accept responsibility or take any kind of display any kind of acceptance <coughs> of um, accountability for what had happened and mm. that this really revealed cultural problems, yeah, problems yeah, yeah. with leadership, problems with governance and from the top down this real cultural emphasis within the police of just getting results, mm. i.e. convictions totally. at any cost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 
with a complete lack of regard for the serious consequences to the rights well, of individuals and and the effect on the actual administration of the they, justice they, they system. Obviously, they really, obviously the system. probably don't care. I mean, you're not held personally re- responsible. So it's like, oh, well, we'll catch them again. Yeah. Well, that's interesting you say that, right, because the police's response in terms of their kind of um, institutional response was to ultimately give a public apology mm. um, and then their submissions were very much, I, th- I think, in line with that approach of we back all our coppers mm. and so their submission was no individual police officer knowingly did something yeah. improper, sure. but we accept that there were systemic failings. What does now, that mean, what does knowingly? That mean? It's like in Section 1 through 8 of the Evidence Act where you have the question of whether an impropriety was done knowingly or not is relevant to admissibility. And you get all these decisions about does knowingly mean you intentionally did the conduct or does knowingly mean you knew that it was wrong? Well, like I, just I mean, the commission the said anyway... Made. It doesn't accept that there was no knowing impropriety on the part of any officer involved in these events. I mean, they were they were they're on tape, for example, in conversations talking about the possibility of a royal commission, talking about ethical problems. I mean, and even if you don't know it's illegal, you know that you're subverting a defence lawyer who is presenting themselves to their client as their loyal agent, and you're subverting them for the purpose of the prosecution or the police. Doesn't really matter how you characterise that in your own head. That's knowing impropriety, surely. Mm. Yeah, and the solution is to jail the people who did it. I mean, there's no... I, As much as I would like to believe I live in a world where those who have the kind of power that police forces have can be trusted to do the right thing, and when they fail to do the right thing can be trusted to fix it as best they can, we don't. And that's why we have a criminal justice system. It's why I spend a lot of my time defending people. Um, and that's that. And, you know, I, I'm pleased for the criticism for the police for being that way by the Royal Commission, but it's not going to change anything. What will change things is if people go to jail uh, and whether or not that happens, who knows? I've probably blown my job application by saying that. But it really struck you know. me. Sorry to interrupt you, money. It no. really struck me that one of the recommendations that the commission thought needed to be made to address this issue of the failure of the police to comply with their disclosure obligation in criminal proceedings, which we've talked about in a previous episode. Mm. Um, yeah, one of the recommendations that was made, recommendation seventy-five. Um, was in relation to establishing a disclosure governance committee that had the responsibility for identifying and monitoring systemic disclosure issues and overseeing the development and implementation of reforms to improve the disclosure processes and practices. And that sounds like it's the kind of thing that's much needed here in New South Wales as well. And the committee would consist of people from the DPP or the the equivalent Victorian Office of Public Prosecution. Sorry to use an acronym. Mm, Jim, the Victorian Government Solicitor's Office, the Department of Justice and Community Safety, Victoria Legal Aid, other relevant legal profession representatives and stakeholders. But they also recommended that Victoria introduce in their legislation a regime which is very similar to what currently exists in New South Wales, which is to say a statutory requirement on police to disclose matters Mm. to the DPP 
and then a statutory requirement that the police sign what's called a disclosure certificate to say that they have disclosed everything um, appropriately and to the extent that there are things that they're not disclosing because they want to claim some kind of public interest immunity or some they have some reason for not disclosing it, that they make a note that that kind of thing exists so that then it can be properly litigated and a court can determine whether or not it's appropriate for that material to be handed over to the accused or if not, whether that means, for example, that the criminal proceedings shouldn't be allowed to go ahead at all because whilst the information can't be disclosed, it's, it would be so important to the defence that um, it can't be a fair trial after that. And that really... that passage of the recommendations kind of jumped out to me because I was thinking that is just no safeguard at all because we have those provisions here in New South Wales and every single day of the week mm-hmm. police in New South Wales breach their disclosure obligations and breach the requirements of those statutory provisions that exist in the Director of Public Prosecutions Act here in New South Wales yeah. and I just well, there's no, know, no legislation doesn't it. change culture and I don't know how how you change it, but that it just seems like you need to wipe out the leadership and enforceability. Ins- There's no enforceability. There will come a time where I have a matter in which disclosure fails, and I win it at trial, and then I get instructions to charge the police officer with fraud, and that's what we'll have to do. That's mm-hmm. the only way, because the the institutions won't take action, mm-hmm. and until somebody's jailed for their crimes in failing to disclose. It's just going to continue. And it is a crime. There's no doubt about it. So how would you frame a fraud charge against a police officer? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. You, you would do it as a fraud. You might do it as an attempt to pervert the course of justice. But they obtain a benefit. Attempt to pervert it definitely could be. Definitely an attempt. If you don't disclose some protruding thing of relevance to credibility and you disguise it and someone's presented as credible, I mean, that, I think that could be an attempt to pervert. And now because in the ordinary course of events and under lawful lawful obligation it should be disclosed and would inevitably form part of the proceedings mm. so you're fundamentally altering the course of justice right that's right so, it's so just lastly on culture the thing that surprises me about this is not that it happens in the sense of police talking to defense lawyers and getting information but that it went so high now assuming that it, that it hasn't happened um, in new south wales in this way mm. i mean do you guys think that there's defense lawyers out there that are assisting the police regular in a more informal way i mean one hopes not is the answer to that question um there's also the reality that there are certain benefits that one can get one's client by dealing with the police and there's nothing wrong with that in certain circumstances um, but you can't be sure surely it's such it goes aberrant on aberrant behavior <clears throat> such aberrant yeah. behavior yeah it's an, it's an interesting point you made though manny because <clears throat> it's part of our job to assist the police sometimes it's yeah. part of our job to talk to our clients about assisting the police mm. and it's such a fine line isn't it you know these things yeah although yeah but there's a not thousand... a conflict there if if it's in your client's interest to get the discount for assisting authorities. Yeah, absolutely. But there's a lot of preliminary conversations, isn't there? And then then there can be conversations after the fact. And what I'm saying is these relationships are established. Mm. You're doing these dealings. And like you said, if you've got a client... All corruption. Yeah, all corruption seems to start incrementally, you know? I mean, the one that really pisses me off, and this is perhaps a good place to end it, is that there are undoubtedly lawyers out there who aren't doing anything dodgy but they're pulling their punches in order to maintain relationships and that in my mind is not all.
Since recording last week, the Victorian Court of Appeal quashed one of drug baron Tony Mockbell's convictions for importing a commercial quantity of cocaine as a consequence of Nicola Gobbo's involvement in the trial. The Commonwealth Department of Prosecutions agreed that the conviction should be set aside and also confirmed that they would not be seeking to retry Mr Mockbell for the offence, given that he has already served the 12-year jail sentence for the offence. Another man, Salvatore Agresta, was released on bail pending an appeal against his conviction for smuggling millions of ecstasy pills from Italy in tomato tins in 2007. The fallout of the Lawyer X affair will no doubt continue to have significant ripple effects throughout the criminal justice system. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I haven't used that line in a while. Um, it's welcome back to the wigs. It's the Christmas special, the Christmas extravaganza. Uh, we've just, you know, had the fantastic discussion about uh, Lawyer X, and now we're going to go into insurance. No, this is not an ad. <laughs> this is insurance. I've forgotten what. What? Yeah, go I'm ahead. I'm pointing uh, just just before we go into this topic. I'm pointing because. I think we haven't addressed that. Oh, yeah. We haven't addressed the elephant. And we oh, we yeah. need to address that. Oh, the yes, the And the answer is we sold out as cheaply <laughs> and as quickly as we can. Yep. And, you know, I'm going to be drinking daiquiris or something. <laughs> the money is pouring in. Thank it's you. It's pouring in. Have we actually got paid for our ads yet? <laughs> I haven't checked the accounts. But, uh, <laughs> I think um, people should, I think. I think in fairness to us, what we should say is that that pays for our hosting, which costs us money. Yeah, now, exactly. Because yeah. We are being downloaded so much. When you, when you run it, for listeners who want to know, when you run a podcast, you can't just make a podcast and stick it up on the internet and be like, oh, great, how good is free life? No, you have to pay for hosting. It's not like sticking a video up on YouTube. And it costs a bomb in a lot of instances. And thank you, Manny. So so we had to get sponsored. So, so we have ads now. On the we website. have ads. The moral of the story. To pay for the hosting. And, not to pay um, for us. Unless we make a real lot of money, we're not going to make any money out of it no so please share tag review oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. so buy that mattress that you just heard about it's a it's you'll you'll fucking love it okay That's sorry free. Free. I no. think my sister actually did buy oh, yeah. that mattress there you go there you go it's yeah, it's family support the Bahamas business class the Bahamas is yeah we're really not making a dime out of this thing all money is going back into the show yeah yeah going into researchers paying for the host to be fair we haven't made a cent yet other yeah. than having the Hosting. It's going to be about 20 cents an episode we're going to make. Uh, yeah, like less. <laughs> it's not gobbo rates, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, so Felicity Graham. That's me. I uh, forget what you're... But it's got something to do with insurance, am I right? Yes. Am I going to want to hear this? Look, it's a sort of... It's a COVID mm. case, okay, basically. Let's, let's so... All right. So there's a caravan park in Tamworth. Okay. Uh, in northwestern New South Wales. And there's a shop in Maribyrnong in Victoria. I know Maribyrnong very well. Do you? I used to work down there quite often. Yep. It's where Bill Shorten's office was. I don't know if you guys heard behind the podcast recently, but I used to work for him. So. Gosh, that was good. Yeah, thank you So much. why are we advertising Tamworth? It's a bit of a competitor to Dubbo. Well, good point. Okay, Flick. Oh, sorry, Flick. Go on. <laughs> These places are... You couldn't get Weren't more... Weren't we going to do an episode on right, men so. interrupting women? Weren't we going to do an episode on that? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so so this this is the it. reason these two kind of quite disparate... We'll do that next year. This is turning into like the Friendly Geordies podcast, <laughs> where they just drink and interrupt each other. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't wait for the video edit. 
Um, yes, Felicity. Uh, yeah, so, okay. Tamworth, these two. Maribyrnong. Yep. Caravan Park shop. Um, they were part of a test case in the New South Wales Court of Appeal mm-hmm. because they both had insurance policies to insure their businesses against interruptions caused by, for example, um, outbreaks of certain infectious diseases. Wow, okay. Um, within, say, a 20-kilometre radius of where the business operates. That's smart. Yeah, so they had these insurance policies which were effectively identical, like a sort of template um or relevantly, a kind of template insurance policy. And there was a carve-out from these disease benefit clauses that basically said the cover does not apply to circumstances involving, um, like, particularly named disease relating to avian influenza, whatever. Highly pathogenic. Or... Yeah, highly pathogenic avian influenza in humans or other diseases declared to be quarantinable diseases under the Australian Quarantine Act 1908 and subsequent amendments. So what other diseases would you need insurance from? I'm just curious. So these are that which you don't get insurance This is what you for. don't... So these are the carve-out. So it says... No, no, but what would that leave to insure you against? Hmm... That's yeah. what I'm, it just seems an unusual policy. It but maybe like the matter's just, closed based yeah. on that one carve-out. Maybe it's smallpox or something. Yeah. Well, smallpox yeah. happened to be a declared quarantinable disease under uh, the Quarantine Act. So I mean, maybe like this is one of the whatever sort of yeah. coverages in the policy. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So, anyway, these policies were entered into at a time when actually the Quarantine Act didn't exist anymore. So and the lawyers must have bugged it. Had, well. Because oh, the Biosecurity Act had come in. Correct. Uh, which we talked about in the previous episode. Correct. Oh, so the policy specifically mentioned the Quarantine Act. Correct. Whereas the legislation had changed. Yeah. That's right. So the Quarantine Act had been repealed. It had been replaced with the um, Biosecurity Act of 2015. And they were two pieces of legislation that kind of were broadly trying to achieve the same purpose and had the same sort of function, although they had different mechanics. Yeah. So... It's like successor legislation, isn't it? Is that part of the case? Yeah. So basically, um, the one of the main arguments that the insurers ran was that this phrase and subsequent amendments encapsulated mm-hmm. the repealing of the Quarantine Act mm-hmm. and it the replacement of it in terms of broad policy function and applicability. Well, put it in your policy. Security put it in your yeah. policy. Well, that's basically what the Court of Appeal said. Mm. good. So they didn't I'll swear. I'll this. Don't worry. I'll be put on that. Yeah, well, uh, they should. Bring swearing back to the court. Yeah, so it's kind of... It's been popular, the beeping, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah we've been no, to I've the last episode. Good people like it. My aunt, my <laughs> mum, all the aforementioned people who'd You're been welcome. offended. Yeah. <laughs> And I repeal my uh, offence givens. Please proceed. <laughs> That's good proponing, mate. Yeah, later. There you go. <laughs> Hang on a minute. We need to explain. No, we don't. There's a podcast about the wigs, and Jim no, was interviewed to talk about the wigs. And in the course of the podcast, he said that we are good at proponing. <laughs> yeah, well, I've and been I stand proponing by. for years. <laughs> and then I had to quickly Google what the. F- 
I was talking about. Among many nice things that he said about us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I gave you a big rap, and this is what you remember. You did. Anyway, Flip. <laughs> you proponed us. <laughs> yeah, you're, well, you're welcome. And I've never so, been so well proponed. What did the, so, so the court said. It sounds dirty now. Yes, yeah, so the court basically said in, no, any subsequent amendment does not. Put it in writing. Mean. Change um, the legislation. The bias. Good one, Dutton. Ouch. What great work, Dutton. Just repeal laws and put your own laws in and f up insurance policies. Well, except, <laughs> job. except that man. it didn't happen kind of during the term of the insurance policy. Like these policies uh, were entered sorry, into Jim, years after the change had been made in the oh, legislation. And they hadn't updated their policy. Correct. Update so, your policy. Can I just say <laughs> yes. that the phrase biosecurity act is Orwellian to the bullshit. Yep. And what the hell is wrong with quarantine? What does it's it mean? Bio say. means world, does it? Bio oh, means? No, bio, no, that's geo. Bio, <laughs> what's security? <laughs> that's propone. Put away yeah. the champagne. Oh, we, have we reached that point? Are we really going to bubble back to the to publish this? This, this makes sense. This yeah. Con- yeah. yeah. This, this, the way this is going makes total sense. Absolutely. Okay, so Supreme Court said no dice. Yep. Been in this Five judges <laughs> sat in the Court of Appeal for this <laughs> test case. It had been filed... So. Yeah, so the insurers refused to um, honour the policy. They then brought litigation in the Supreme Court seeking a declaration that their interpretation of the policy was correct. Mm -hmm. And Justice Hammerschlag said, look, this is actually a really important case and it has brought a significance, so I'm going to actually send this case up to the Court of Appeal. Mm And he sat along with four other judges, so they sat a five-judge bench, which is also quite unusual, um, to kind of settle this. Except in cases involving Felicity Graham. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know. You've had a couple recently, come uh, on. Yeah. It's true. Okay. She's she's blushing, for those who who can't see. And, yeah, basically they said, look, it's not ambiguous and you can't, contort the words in that way. So um, who won? Who won? So the uh, caravan park in Tamworth and Sucked the shop in, in Maribyrnong won. Good. So a disease scheduled under the Biosecurity Act is the same thing as a disease under the no, Quarantine No, it's not. Act. It's not. So that means that COVID interruptions were covered because the Quarantine declared... Um, the Quarantine Act declared diseases were a carve-out from the protection. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. 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 But then, then you know, they pay out and then check their premiums at the end of the year. So, so they rejected the argument that it's like successor legislation and should be interpreted to be the same thing. Yeah, so they basically just I agree said amendments means amendment someone. to the Act. Not a new Act. Exactly. But it's the, an Act trying to achieve the same thing, right? No. Hire someone, read the policy, and then you'd be able to pick up on it. It had different mechanics. So, for example, under the Quarantine Act, the Governor-General declared certain diseases to be quarantinable diseases. Under the Biosecurity Act, um, instead, it was a process where certain diseases were um, listed human diseases and they become became a listed human disease under a process that involved basically determination by the chief health officer in consultation with other state um, health officers. And so to the extent that the policy referred to not only the Quarantine Act, it also referred to diseases declared to be quarantinable diseases. They just said it's just going too far, like it's different language. Mm -hmm. And they also said that 
this clause, even though it would have quite a limited operation, would still have some work to do in the terms of the contract because the diseases like cholera and smallpox and plague and whatever that had already been declared to be quarantinable diseases under the Quarantine Act would still have that operation. And, you know, if you're going to do a contract, we'll do a contract that's up to date with what the legislation is. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So so the doctrine, I think, is mistake, isn't it? That that was one of the arguments that they ran. Um, <laughs> it's their own policy. No, but but so if you have a contract where it's self-evident that the objective intention of the right. parties isn't to enter what it seems on the face of it they've entered, then the court will displace the literal meaning, but only if the literal meaning results in an absurdity. Mm. I know. But and this is not an absurdity. This is, it's not this an is laziness. Yeah, it's, a mis- it's an error. It's an error that they mm. didn't check their own policy and they've entered into a contract with someone. That's not a mistake. But, I mean, it's pretty clear, I think, that both parties... Well, I don't know whether there's evidence of this, but you might say that both parties didn't know that what they were signing up to... Well, there's evidence that they didn't know... That the Quarantine Act had been repealed. Had been repealed. Yeah, yeah. So the and next, the court approached yeah. it on that basis. Yeah. But on this question of mistake, so Justice Hammerschlag says, look, correction of a mistake in a contract is concerned with where there's an error of expression in the language. So there's got to be something that's gone wrong with the language of the agreement where something's been said but where, like, clearly it's nonsensical Mm. and it means something else and that other meaning is an obvious one in terms of what the party's intended. There's a similar Um, principle in statutory interpretation. mm. You read out words and read in words, change words. Yeah, but there's a lot more. The mistake happened before any issue in terms of expression of the language. Like, the mistake happened by the parties not knowing about the Quarantine Act having been repealed and replaced with a similar but different act in the Biosecurity Act. And that's not what this is about, this kind of principle of the construction of um, contracts. Is this a common form uh, sort of contract clause? Is this going to have wider implications? Well, my, I, my impression is that it will. That's why they took it up. Well, it's right. easily solvable. Yeah, fix your contract. But well, not not in part. So so there was this distinction between Justice Marr and Ball, who did a, a who did a joint judgment rather. I'm really impressed that you guys read this. In se- I'm Thank just you. expressing strident views so about it without I, having I th- read it. I found it fascinating. This is I read this and I'm like, man, I contracts was my best subject at university. It's one of my worst. And, I, and I would have loved to have done this, except. There's all the other parts of commercial law. Like, I don't know anyone who says contracts um, was my best subject. It was, 98 out of 100. Who says Loved that? it. No, no. It's crazy. You're it. insane. That's insane. Um, anyway, Justice Maher and Ball were of the view that um, there was a mistake, whereas Justice Hammerschlag may, said, look, I suspect there was a mistake, but I can't be sure that there was a mistake. Like... Maybe but it's a common meant, mistake. Maybe they meant the quarantine action. And not all right. mistakes are mistakes, right? For no, the but, purpose of this doctrine. Right? But it could be common yeah. mistake. No, no, no. Well, that's what but you said before. Both parties came to it believing that the Quarantine Act, well, had no knowledge that the Quarantine Act had been pulled back. So if both parties are in, in mistake, are mistaken as to the existence of, a, of an act... Well, maybe. But that doesn't mean that they were mistaken in their intention. 
And this is what Justice Hammerschlag's oh, okay. view was, and it's the view that I prefer for what that's worth, which is not very much. And but it doesn't mean you're reading a whole new act, which has different implications. No, well, I, and so and so, Justices Bell and sorry, President Bell and the Chief Justice kind of said, "Look, it just doesn't matter which one of those views is right. You can't go this far, and that's the ball game." But it seems to me that whilst we can sit here and say, "Look, that must have been wrong," there was, arguably at least some reason why you might say, look, all of these things that have been declared by the Quarantine Act to be diseases that are quarantinable, we just going to exclude those. But we're not we're not going to exclude things going into the future under the Biosecurity yeah. Act. Mm. Or new diseases that emerge. Yeah, that- including COVID. Mm. And it may be a horrible commercial mistake to have done that, but that doesn't mean that they didn't make that commercial mistake. And it, the court's not concerned with correcting commercial mistakes. No. That's right. Yeah, not all mistakes are sort of relevant mistakes. It'd be easily solvable. I mean, if you're an insurance company, you update your policies, you email all your clients and say, oh, hey, we've just updated your insurance policy. Please sign here. Well, there's a, there's a rule. New contract. I don't want to pronounce because it's like contra non preferens or something, which is the, the, a, a, an old rule, which is sort of limited in its application now, I suspect, because the insurance companies have chipped away at it. But it's like, look, you're the company that's creating these pro forma contracts it's your job to put in there everything that needs to be in there clearly. And the people you're dealing with don't really have that kind of ability. They, they're, not, they're not going to come and negotiate a contract with you. They're going to sign it or That's not. That's right. Yeah. And so when we come to construe the contract, we're going to construe it in favour of the... Yeah, you're right. ...of the insured... Yeah. If there's some ambiguity, yeah. if there is ambiguity, because there's yeah, no bargaining necessary. power, you're right. Yeah. yeah, for the Latin lovers out there, contra preferentum. Yeah, yeah, I know. Do you know that? We just Beautiful. did it. Yeah, so you look the same the thing. Offerer. Well, yeah, it's right. And it's the same thing when you sign an iTunes. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I accept the conditions, whatever. Because what are you going to do? Negotiate with your computer screen that you don't like clause I three. I said Tim no, I don't. You know, it's the same thing. You're doing contra preferentum contracts every day when you click you agree the clause going into whatever website you want. You have never been so authoritative on the law, Jim. You're on fire. Don't test me, bro. <laughs> don't test me. <laughs> more champagne. No, no more. The show's getting messy now. <laughs> I'm losing it. We're almost there. had about two sips. <laughs> I know. You're the one that's getting all together. I'm trying to. Look, uh, I see you nursing this drink. Oh, look, guys, I'm it. trying to hold it together oh, yeah. whilst you guys Why should get... you? I'm done. I'm clearly done after can that last No, no, quick, bring, bring your glass across. Just Can you just give me, like, a teaspoonful? Yeah. You're appallingly sober. So, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> uh, we're back. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, <laughs> She's in- a hardened criminal lawyer. She knows how to drink. That's right. That's right. It's true, but, you know, this is serious business, This boys. is serious because we're about to talk about something serious. So, I'm look. feeling very Christmassy. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> oh, God. Don't do an ASMR do, 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 podcast do, do, do. on us. So, we have just... I hope you enjoyed that mattress commercial. Now it's time to get on with the serious business <coughs> of drug law reform. <laughs> now, Mr. Stephen Lawrence, uh, I believe you have a thing or two to say about this. Yes. Good. So I'm talking about a law reform proposal that has not gone to Cabinet or not been approved by Cabinet, has not been released publicly, and is not, in fact, a law, law reform proposal yet. <laughs> but somehow we all know about it. Uh, anyway, let's do a deep dive on the detail of it. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I'm talking about a proposal that was leaked into the media, I think, last week. Mm -hmm. And apparently it's a proposal that the Attorney-General of New South Wales, Mark Speakman, is putting to Cabinet. I think as part of the government's proposed response to the ICE inquiry, which um, is mooted to have a range of different things in it, including drug court, uh, perhaps youth quarry court, expansion of drug rehab uh, facilities and so forth, but also um, a law reform agenda to it. And part of the background to it is that the ICE inquiry, which was uh, commissioned in 2018 and then held hearings across the state looking into the problem of methamphetamine or the drug known as ICE, um, as part of its recommendations, it recommended effectively the decriminalisation um, of drug possession. And it's worth a read, the um, ICE inquiry report. It's pretty long and comprehensive, but makes a persuasive case uh, for the decriminalisation of drugs and the adoption of a comprehensive harm minimisation approach. Um, in any event, our State Cabinet at the moment <clears throat> apparently is considering its response to it. And certain people, it would seem, in the state government have leaked a particular aspect of it, which is Mark Speakman's proposal for a three strikes policy when it comes to the possession of illicit drugs. And what's been reported in the media, and I think we can talk about it as a pretty um, authoritative leak because a number of politicians, including John Barillaro, uh, the Deputy Premier, um, and David Elliott, the Police Minister, have spoken about it in the media and basically seem to have confirmed the leak. Uh, the proposal is to introduce, as I said, a three-strikes policy for drug possession. And the way that it would work is that um, a person in New South Wales would have a statutory entitlement to um, a caution, effectively, for a first offence of drug possession. For a second and third offence of drug possession, a person would have a right to receive a fine or in exchange for not paying a fine, um, they would be referred uh, to drug treatment and rehabilitation effectively. And on the spot type fine, like a penalty notice? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but that fine would be waived if the person accepts this, uh, this referral to treatment. Okay. On a fourth offence only, would the person be charged and prosecuted as happens at the moment? So and as I said... Do you have any kind of idea... Sorry to interrupt you. No, no, not at all. Stephen. I'm happy Thank to you for be the apology. Um, I don't get apologised too when it's interruptions. No, you're disturbing phenomena, isn't it? But anyway. Uh, you don't flick, and I noticed. Yeah. She I does a fair share of interrupting. We know that. You just interrupted her. I come again. from a big family. So do I. You've got to, you've got to jump. <laughs> Strange in, middle really. names, big families. You guys got a lot in common. Oh, basically the same person. Anyway, Felicity Gray. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your patience in listening to this. Yeah, we're getting there. It's the Christmas episode. What, do we know from this leak what kind of um, amount of drugs they're talking about in terms of possession? No, that's an interesting question. And um, I looked into it yesterday and I spoke to a couple of people who suggested that it might be up to the deemed supply level. So the level at the moment where you're deemed to be in supply. trafficable quantity. I think it's trafficable mm. quantity. So not, not including trafficable but up to. I think so, mm. yeah. But that's um, like five grams of ice or something. Yeah, it's pretty small. No, no, I think it's less than that, isn't it? But this is fairly and squarely um, only about possession offences. No, no, that's okay, though. Yeah, I think it would be a big step forward, to be honest. Um, Anyway, look, Mark Speakman um, has put it to Cabinet. Apparently it's going again to Cabinet on Monday. Um, 
That's the proposal. So it's interesting to think about it in terms of how it sits in the context of other schemes in Australia. And it's actually not that radical. Um, All Australian jurisdictions, to some extent, have moved away from this strict uh, position of criminalisation. Three jurisdictions, South Australia, the ACT and the Northern Territory, have introduced decriminalisation in a sense in the form of civil penalty schemes in respect of cannabis. Um, All jurisdictions have introduced um, schemes in the nature um, of police diversion, so where police have a discretion uh, not to charge a person or after charging to divert the person from the system. Um, In most jurisdictions, these programs apply to a range of illicit drugs, but in two, New South Wales and Queensland, they only apply to cannabis. Um, So we do have a limited scheme in that sense. So look, in one sense, in terms of... Sorry, the cannabis caution system in New South Wales doesn't involve any kind of diversion to treatment. No, but diversion away from the criminal justice system. You get a freebie. That's right, you pay a fine, basically. Yeah. No, no. The, you, you just get a caution. You get a caution. Sorry, you get a caution. Yeah. Sorry, caution. Don't do it yet. Yeah, cannabis caution scheme. Um, so, look, at a sort of conceptual level, this is not that radical. I mean, it's a bit different to schemes in other jurisdictions because you have the entitlement to the first strike where you get a caution and then the entitlement to two more strikes where you get a fine or diversion. So, different to them, but... It's not radical. Um, it's not decriminalisation um, in truth um, or in concept. Anyway, it's met this very strong opposition uh, from segments of the state government. Uh, the Labor opposition seems to be laying low on it. I think it's probably a fair analysis. There's no sort Why? of formal position that's been put. Oh, look, I think their position would probably be that they'll await a formal announcement. And then, uh, you know, once there's a formal announcement, we'll go through okay. a shadow caucus and cabinet. Okay. Um, do you know? Is there do you know a from? Do you know from kind of um, conferences or whatever what the likely res- policy response would be from Labor? No, I've spoken to a few, a few people about it. Um, I mean, I see. I think it would be difficult to imagine the Labor opposition opposing this. I'm sure there would be some people in the Labor opposition um, and shadow cabinet who might be tempted to take a law and order approach to this and think that you can wedge the government on this but I would like to think that a majority uh, wouldn't have that view Mm. I mean Alan Jones I think about the time of the drug inquiry came out and said the the ICE inquiry came out if not completely in favour of decriminalisation he spoke fairly strongly in favour of it Absolutely. And I think it's like it, it's an issue that sort of crosses politics. Everyone sees that what's in place isn't working um, and something needs to be done. And what blows my mind is that there are people in the government who leak this and that there are people in the media or somewhere who seem to think that this is some sort of bad idea. And you know these, you know these National Party MPs, Barilaro, but also Dougald Saunders from Dubbo, Milo Klempe, um, and a couple of other people were out there in the media, basically saying, "Oh, you know, my electorate's been hit by the ice epidemic, and we need to discourage drug use, and therefore I oppose this proposal because it, you know, it's going to be bad for my electorate." And 
you just see a failure to engage with the research about what drives drug use, mm, what reduces drug so use, what increases drug use. And this idea that maintaining a punitive approach to the offence of drug possession in any way pushes down drug use is completely fallacious. Completely. So Portugal's a really good example <clears throat> of a, a model of decriminalisation of possession and use of drugs that has had a really long, um, almost 20-year history because they decriminalised possession of all drugs for personal use in 2001. Mm. So there's been kind of a chance to have a long look and analyse what's going on there. And decriminalisation, which is different to what's being proposed yeah. here, it's a much more progressive um, and kind of really sensible sort of approach that actually really grapples with the um, with the issues um, at play. No evidence of a rise in drug use as a result of <coughs> decriminalisation. In fact, in Portugal, the level of drug use is actually below the European average and drug use declined for various age groups, including those aged between 15 and 24. I mean, it's, it, when I was... It's, what, 14 years since I was at the ALS out in Dubbo and I remember when ICE came into Wentworth mm. and it was horrific and you had all these people who'd been done with petty offences all of a sudden being done for drug possession, all of a sudden committing crimes. And it was really a horrific wave. And it, But whatever the case may be, it's 14 years later now and it's still going on. So what we've done doesn't work. How about we just try something new? Mm. But the interesting thing is that Drugs are illegal both federally and in the state, aren't they, Stephen? So what happens if if, if we were to go so far as to legalise it or, or to decriminalise it? How does that intersect with the common law? Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting um, and complicated question. Uh, so basically, there's a chapter um, in the Federal Criminal Code that is concerned with drugs and it creates an offence of the possession of illicit drugs and the drugs listed for the purpose of the federal criminal code are basically the same drugs that are listed for the purpose mm. of state law so it is actually an offence under federal law to possess small amounts of cannabis small amounts of ice small amounts of mdma etc although people are almost always prosecuted under state law for that's those right. types of offences yeah that's yeah. right though i mean it's interesting because the federal uh, the chapter of the federal criminal code that's concerned with drugs has its its emanation uh, from the model criminal code project. Mm. So it was actually intended to be a model code for drugs that would apply across the country. And the idea of that project was that it would, would be enacted at the federal level and then would be enacted at the state and territory level. So it is a comprehensive sort of code for drug law. Um, what gives the feds the, um, the right... That's also an interesting question. So the they accrue their constitutional jurisdiction to legislate for drug offences from a it? series of treaties that uh, Australia signed. Like external yeah. affairs. Yeah, and there was a narcotics convention in the 60s and then there was two more, I think one in the 70s, one in the 80s. Okay. And they actually commit signatory states to criminalise drug possession. And it's an interesting mm-hmm. sort of issue well, that, that mm-hmm. shows the progression of this issue because... Each of those conventions takes a very punitive approach. Mm-hmm. And there was some, some developments in Australia in the 90s that I recall when, I think it was the ACT, 
maybe it was the early 2000s, the ACT was thinking about um, a medicinal cannabis scheme and uh, people from the United States, from the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, as I recall, it came to Canberra and cautioned them against it um, and said that it would breach Australia's obligations under this convention, which is perhaps true, though there is a number of exceptions in those conventions that enable states to make exceptions in the cases of minor possession, to make exception in the cases of constitutional uh, issues that might prohibit um, or other sort of important systemic issues in the legal system. And what we've seen at the international level is that the UN, and this was either this year or late last year, actually came out through a number of its organisations in favour of decriminalisation. So we've gone from this position of a very punitive approach in all these treaties very quickly to a position where the UN is, take, is taking a much more liberal approach, which kind of reflects what Manny was talking about before, which is this debate sort of reached a tipping point, I think, where harm minimisation, uh, decriminalisation, I think these ideas are having their moment in the sun. I don't think it's going to change. Hey, so can you just come back yeah, to that intersection back to between federal, federal yeah. and state? So let's say a state, <clears throat> Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, whatever, decriminalises possession. Yep. It's still a crime under federal law. How would that play out? Yeah, so this came up in 2019 when the ACT was talking about the decriminalisation of cannabis. Um, There is a section in Chapter 2 of the Federal Criminal Code, which is the chapter that applies to all offences in the uh, Criminal Code and is concerned with sort of principles of criminal responsibility. So what are the elements of offences? What are the defences to criminal offences? And so forth. And one of the sections in there, uh, 10.5, is headed lawful authority and it states a person is not criminally responsible for an offence if the conduct constituting the offence is justified or excused by or under a law and in the definitions in the act that includes a state or territory law so nothing yeah it's complicated though so when the ACT was going to do it um, there was an advice as I recall it issued by the Commonwealth DPP saying that the ACT law would have the effect of providing a lawful authority defence. But that advice was then departed from, I think, and there was at least suggestions of political pressure um, in relation to that. But what ultimately the federal government was saying, and I found some stuff online from um, uh, the Deputy Secretary of uh, the Commonwealth Attorney-General's Department, Sarah Chidji, who I used to work with back in the day. Shout out. So she wrote to the ACT Justice and Community Safety Directorate, noting, and I'm quoting here from a story in The Guardian, the ACT government planned to retain the territory offences for possessing 50 grams or more of cannabis, but create an exception for people 18 or over. Chidji said the Commonwealth Criminal Code provided an exemption where conduct is justified under a law of a state or territory, but it required um, a positive basis in the law for the conduct that constitutes the offence. And then she went on to say, Sarah Chidji, the department has not seen the proposed terms of the ACT government's proposed amendments, but there is a question about whether an exception of the kind you describe would satisfy this requirement. So what they seem to be saying is that an absence of criminalisation might not amount to um, a positive lawful authority for the purpose of federal law. I mean, that seems right. 
It does sound right, actually. Yeah, yeah as much as I'd like to yeah. sort of think to the contrary, it does sound right. Yeah. Um, and then you, I suppose, inevitably drift to questions of Section 109 of the Constitution and inconsistency. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because the Federal Criminal Code's chapter about drugs is much more progressive mm. in many of its policy prescriptions than state law. Why don't you just explain what happens in an inconsistency? Yeah, so Section 109... Of the Constitution. I just love the way you said that. It was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> so, Section 109 of the Constitution. Hang on, I'm just going to swig. Yeah, I'm while, just going to quaff, quaff some of my champagne. While you're, already, um, while you're on there, would you like me to? No, you guys. Section 109 of the Constitution says that when there is an inconsistency between state and federal law, uh, that federal law prevails and the state law is inconsistent to the extent of the inconsistency. Invalid to the Sorry, invalid. Yeah. Of the inconsistency. Um, and Felicity and I, funnily enough, back in the day, when we were working at the ALS, we took on um, a quixotic uh, crusade all the way to the High Court. About 11 judges disagreed with us yeah. in the end. <laughs> <laughs> saying that... Something like that. Saying that the, the chapter in the Federal Criminal Code about drugs was... In our case, which was concerned with supply, inconsistent with the state law, and therefore basically the whole of state drug law was inconsistent and therefore invalid. <laughs> I see, so you tried to get every yeah, drug dealer in prison down. out? No, no, we didn't. We no, tried, no, to, get no, moved, we tried to get them moved into a federal prison. <laughs> oh, I see. Anyway, we went <laughs> to the, the, the Court of Criminal Appeal, and as often happens with Felicity, they convened a full court of five. Right. And we lost oh, five they took nil. seriously. And we lost five nil in this case. They usually take me seriously and then down me. <laughs> <laughs> so who they was want to really rub it in, you know, like yeah. really skewer my oh, arguments. Um, who was our counsel in that case? Brett Walker. No, no, it, um, oh, Court right. of Criminal Appeal. Oh, um, so, okay, Anna Nicole, Healy. we had Chris Lucas. And did we have Peter Lang and Anne Healy? Anne Healy and Peter, I think we did, yeah. Then we lost 5-0. Then we sought special leave. And there were three judges in the special leave mm, And they uh, adjourned. List. They adjourned over morning tea to consider and our point. We have Brett Walker. That was yeah. a big win. Yeah. It was the first time that... <laughs> They're thinking about it. <laughs> yes. And they realised that every drug dealer in prison might come out. Yeah. <laughs> so we <laughs> lost there, if you call that a loss, which I think you do. So we had five plus three plus one. So we lost in front of nine. So it was nine, judges. not 11. But I'm yeah. sure that we were right. Yeah. Yeah. You stand yeah. By your yeah. Our client, when I told the client about how, you know, we're going to the High Court and this, you know, your case is Ratcliffe and the Queen, she was like, oh, yeah, Ratty and the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a Coe too, Buckman, wasn't there? Yeah. Mm. Anyway, so we lost. So that's a bit of a diversion. But the idea that the war Commonwealth story. of Australia would pursue somebody charged with the possession of a few grams of a drug is absurd. And if that if the constitution permits that, that <clears> blows <throat> my mind. And even if it does, that the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions might pursue a matter like that is absurd. Mm. I mean I think they would only absurd. do it as an alternative to some more serious offence, right? Like they plead someone out to some alternative offence mid trial or something. Yeah, but um, well sure. It's not their bread and butter stuff. Yeah. They almost never prosecute it. Well, I know, but that's why I, I don't know why they're there. I don't know why. In fact, I'm not even sure how 
a matter like that would get to them. Well, it was meant to be this model, right, that was meant to be rolled out across the nation, which would have been a good thing because a lot of the policy choices in the model criminal code drug chapter are much better. Like you don't have... For example, the additive... So you don't have gratuitous supply treated as supply. It's got to be commercial trafficking. And And for example, if you have a kilo of powder, one gram of which in fact, is yeah, there's no it's treated as one gram, not yeah, nice. a kilo, yeah. as it is in New South Wales, which is just quite absurd. So, yeah, so McClock, for those who don't know, is the Model Criminal Law Officers Committee, um, which was originally called the Model Criminal Officers, Criminal Officers Committee, and they changed yeah. it because of the acronym. Um, but right. that recommended a series, basically recommended a criminal code that would be uniform across Australia. Mm. This was in the uh, 90s, wasn't it? Well, it started yeah. earlier, maybe. Maybe, mm. maybe it was the 90s. I mean, mm. okay, maybe the code, the federal code came in in the 90s. When did the code come in? Process. I can tell you when the code came in because my first job yeah. was working yeah. on the code yeah. after it had been passed, but I think not enacted yet. And they had to standardise the whole Commonwealth statute book with it. And I got that job in 2001. And our job was to basically go through the whole statute book and look for for uh, exceptions and defences. Yep. Because under the code, exceptions or defences have to be expressly stated. Mm. So that was my job for six mm. months. So the, the code provided many things and covered everything, including drugs, but also provided for a statutory scheme for criminal responsibility in Chapter 2. And one of the funny things that's happened, if you want to call it funny, it's a bit disturbing, is that aspects of the code have been passed by non-code jurisdictions like ours, like New South Wales, and the result of which is that there are laws on the books that rep- that require things that relate to Chapter 2 of the Criminal Code that just don't exist in our law. So like recklessness, the definition of recklessness, definition of defences and so on, don't exist in the same way that they exist. And so there's this really weird aspects of the law. Work health and safety is like that. Mm. Fraud is arguably like that in New South Wales now. Coming back to Portugal. Mm, yeah, it's worth talking about Portugal. Yeah, I think it is. Because I think, especially since it's not some pilot program that's it's just been running country. for six months or something, it's a whole country and it's, it's been running for two decades. It's a country in Southwestern Europe. So yes. Portugal, I'd really like to go to Portugal. I would love to go too. I'd love to go anywhere at the moment. It's like Amsterdam in The Wire. Yeah, right. No, you have. Have you watched The Wire? <laughs> Not really. Okay. I couldn't understand what they were talking that about on The Wire. Yeah, yeah. Good. that, that nailed it. That, that, that didn't land. Good. Yeah, I got it. Good. Jenny. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thank back you. to the serious stuff. Go. So Portugal decriminalised possession of all drugs for personal use in 2001. We've got our week's Christmas party coming up soon, so yeah, yeah. Just speed okay, it up. I'll move along. So that means it's no longer a criminal <laughs> offence to possess drugs for personal use in Portugal, but Portugal has quite a different legal system. They're obviously um, a civil legal system, and they have this concept of civil penalty. So people in possession of drugs for personal use in Portugal are guilty, to use the language of the criminal law, of an administrative violation... And you can get fines or community service for that, but it's not a criminal offence. But uh, people are referred to the Commission for the Dissuasion... Uh, commission for the Dissuasion of, of, of Drug Addiction, which are regional panels made up of legal health and social work professionals. The vast majority of cases which are referred there um, are suspended. So normally people don't receive any 
any monetary uh, penalty, penalty or anything. <laughs> but they have to engage in therapy or treatment or something, do they? That's the idea of it, yeah, that you referred into treatment. Some of the benefits of it has been a dramatic drop in HIV and other viral infections. Mm. A big drop. Uh, That's because people related. aren't sharing unclean needles, yep. right? They're just... Because there's no criminal sanction. Yeah. So you don't have to hide under a bridge and shoot up because it's not a crime. Yeah. There's been a decrease um, in drug-related deaths. There's been no evidence of a rise in drug use. Now, that requires a bit of unpacking. So there has been an increase in some cohorts of lifetime use of drugs. So the incidence of people using drugs at some point in their life has increased in some cohorts. Like drug experimentation has gone up a bit. Exactly, but the overall rate of drug use has dropped and in various age groups, importantly um, in the 15 to 24 age group. And people, I think, would well understand why that's an important part of the community. And also people... In this respect. Like addiction to drugs seems to have been somewhat addressed in the sense that people's continuation of drug use has, has decreased. Yeah. So you might use drugs or experiment with them, but you're less likely to continue doing so. Yeah. And so why is that? What, so what if it's criminalised and you use drugs and, and you're pursued for that, do you just continue it because having a criminal record in such a circumstance reduces like what, what, what yeah absolutely like all of the kind of studies in this area and a lot of it's sort of counterintuitive it's, it's, it's a scarlet letter you get yeah, arrested for drug exactly. possession you're fucked for life so you continue to use yeah, like you, know, you have to lie about it because you can't get help you mm. might be charged yeah you know and, and people don't go and get treatment when they're doing something illegal mm. whereas if, you, if you're a you piss know? head you just buy a case you get it out of your system potentially mm. or if you're an addict it continues unfortunate for you but some people are able to move on yeah being stopped and searched standing in the foyer of the children's court all of these experiences that people have stigmatise and push people in the direction of further criminal activity yes this is human beings that we're talking about right um, and if you got cancer Nobody's going to put you in jail because you got cancer. If you're a drug addict, why should you be put in jail? Yeah. Mm. yeah. That's the other really yeah. interesting stat money. So the prison population massively dropped yeah. in mm. Portugal. Yeah. And the percentage of people in for drug offences massively dropped and, as well. And we right, used, yeah. So mm. people who were in for drug offences, what, what were the numbers like? Oh, I think there was like a 20% drop in the amount of people in for drug offences. Yeah, right. Um, So just to be sort of objective, I suppose, about it, the stuff I looked at did suggest that there was an increase in opportunistic thefts and robberies in the five years after decriminalisation, but it then dropped to below decriminalisation levels. Increase, as we've said, in drug experimentation, but did not lead to ongoing use. Ongoing use dropped. Um... So, look, on one view, you know, decriminalisation can potentially lead to an increased supply of drugs. I guess that's the experimentation factor. But overall, the case for the proposition that this makes a healthier, safer yeah, and more functional society is pretty unassailable. You can walk into a Dan Murphy's now and be bombarded with yeah. drugs. Yeah. Like, Go home, and what you are you going to do? Exactly, but what are you going to do? You consume the entire shop. Hmm. You know, you have drug exposure there and... If you're part of a civil society, you're able to exercise control over 
uh, that. Mm. So isn't that the same argument? Yeah. It's this outdated... I think underpinning this is this outdated approach to mental health, mm-hmm. that somehow it's any different from any, any other aspect of one's health. So you might do something stupid and break your leg and you will be treated for that. You do something stupid and get addicted to a drug, somehow you're a pariah for that as if it's any different. Yeah. And it's just not... Um, yeah, Michael McHugh, SC, the president mm, of our association, say, yeah. great, wrote a really good, which I commend to everyone, an op-ed in the Telegraph, I think yesterday, the 10th of December. Um, yeah, there was a better one in the Herald the day before. Oh, who, who wrote that? Only oh. the deputy mayor of Dubbo. Oh, that's right, the deputy mayor of Dubbo wrote it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't have post-nominals, though. Um, the <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Not yet. He's, got, he's got the title of councillor. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, he's entitled. Um, the yeah, uh, but Michael McEwen. Anyway, no, 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 no. That's what I'm getting to. I'm saying you're right. He it was yeah. an amazing article. Sorry. Uh, he, Trying to steer this bus back on, Manny. He he, he ended it with saying, we would ask opponents to honestly answer a simple question. Would you prefer your son, your uncle, your neighbour's daughter to be diverted away from the revolving door of criminal justice system to get an education and treatment for drug abuse or keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results? Mm. And that is, to my mind, whatever your position is on drug use abuse, mm. addiction, it's just like, it's not what we're doing ain't working. Yeah, 100%. You know? you but these it. people, you know, these troglodytes... Sorry, Jim. No, you're right. I just interrupted you. No, no, sorry. I appreciate the apology, <laughs> and I note it. Thank you, Stephen. These troglodytes turn their face away from the research. Yeah, right. They don't want to know about the truth and the reality of yeah, it. because it's fun. All they want is a platform to express their intuitive political views that they think kind of resonate with some segment of the community that they're trying to appeal to. Totally. They're just it's a disgrace. It's a vote Because look, if you look at it from a pragmatic point of view, which I'm, you three are trying to do so, there are many dangers and evils in the world which a child will be exposed to when they grow up. Uh, the internet is flush with horrific pornography that is just expanding, ever expanding. There's no laws that criminalise that. They will be exposed to that. They have to make informed, independent decisions about how to, to navigate their life around that, which is, you know... Including and, state of origin players. <laughs> well, right. And the same thing with alcohol. What, why are drugs a completely different ballpark you know, like, oh, yeah. hang on, that's, that's, a, that's a bridge too far. It's the same thing. It's something that someone will have to make a decision about. And the realities of life. The realities you of know. life. And the realities of human suffering, really. I mean, one of the things that Michael McHugh said was he was commenting on some of the findings of the ICE inquiry that is still yet to have really a meaningful response from this state government. But... <coughs> That inquiry found that criminalising drug use encourages our society to stigmatise people who use drugs as the authors of Mm. their own misfortune, Mm. as if, like, they're the ones that um, are blameworthy um, and encourages people to turn a blind eye to the factors driving most problematic drug use. In other words, trauma, childhood abuse, Mm -hmm. domestic violence, unemployment, homelessness, dispossession from land and language, entrenched social disadvantage, mental illness, loneliness, you know, 
all of these awful incidents of human experience that like that's what we need to be spending our attention Mm. on and focusing our minds on and this rhetoric around let's get tough on crime is just completely focusing on the wrong end of the spectrum of experience and activities that occur in um, society that kind of ultimately it's a vote impact right. upon community safety, social yeah. cohesion, yeah. the welfare of each of our you know members of our community, and, and it encourages use because it's you know the forbidden fruit. Exactly. Uh, at five thirty this afternoon at Black at Blacktown train station, is a time of pandemic. Is a time where the state's finances must be, like all states around the world, in jeopardy. New South Wales police officers and their dogs were being paid to sniff out small amounts of drugs at a train station. That is absolutely fucking absurd. And that's... I don't know how it is that anybody thinks that that's a good idea anymore. Whatever you think about drugs... And, you know, something needs to happen. Okay, thank you. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back. I hope you do enjoy that mattress if you do end up buying it. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for fun things. What a fantastic year it's been. Not really, but let's discuss retrospectively what your favourite fun thing was for the year. Manuel Kirkusheri. I mean, it's a tough call. I got married. Hey! Um, But I think the funnest thing... (laughs) <laughs> the funnest thing I've done, which is a bit absurd, was my tirade in episode, can't remember, about the COVID laws. Yes. Where I just hammered the politicians. I remember that. For yeah. the ridiculousness <laughs> of their position. I really enjoyed doing that. It needed to be done. It was cathartic. Yeah. Um, but also I got married, which was pretty yeah, effing well, awesome. Yeah. Probably better on balance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you called them technocrats. <laughs> You're handing over the laws to the technocrats. Well, you know. Yeah. It was a good episode. Felicity Graham, what was your fun thing for 2020? My fun thing was going to Byron Bay, flying up to Byron Bay for a weekend whilst a jury was out. Right. To distract myself from, you know, of the course. impending Loss. verdict. Right. And then, I, then I won the trial. Hey! Flew back down, acquitted. Excellent. But, yeah, Byron Bay, whilst a jury's out, highly recommend. It's always good to have a humble. Very humble, fun thing. Did you go back and go, now I can enjoy myself? It's a humble brag. I actually <laughs> did go back because I was meant to be on this road trip, mm. um, but I got stuck in this trial. So I went for the weekend in Byron Bay and then I went back down to Albury. He mm. got acquitted and then I continued on the road trip by going back up to Hathead and kind of working my way back down. The, the Is this the matter you lost in the Court of Appeal? Yeah, look, it might have been a matter that I lost in front of five judges in the Court of Criminal Appeal and then lost on a special leave application in the High Court. Yeah. It sounds tiring and stressful, all that travel, but anyway. Yeah. Maybe it was fun. Oh, yeah. Okay, but Stephen Lawrence, Deputy okay. Mayor. I've actually had a pretty good year. Okay. I've had a lot of fun One things. of the few. It's been, obviously been a bad year, sort of on a geo level and yes. everything. but bio level. Bio. <laughs> 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 yeah, look... Probably my highlight, I was Dubbo getting a rehab. Hey. Well done. I have been talking about it for about five years, so yes. I can now stop talking about it. You can. As long as we get it, it's been promised. But Okay. Uh, Good stuff. Mm. Well done. 
<clears throat> Jim? Okay, so my fun thing for the year, <laughs> retrospectively, was getting the write-up in the Herald and getting the number one show in the country. Yeah. For five days. Hey. So, six days? Six days, something six like days, that. Yeah. But we'll take, we'll take it. Um, because, you know, I just think that's a nice big middle finger to everyone else who has a podcast. All the haters. <laughs> Just kidding. We love you all, yeah. competition. Um, so There's those, no competition. No, not with the wigs. No. Um, the Law Report, nice try. Nice try. The guy follows us on Twitter. <laughs> Does he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we follow him back? I think uh, we do. No, let's do, not. Yeah. Hey, yeah, yeah. Well, let's <laughs> not. Let's not. Um, What's his name? Simon. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Damien Carrick? Yeah. I actually like that show. I like it too. Don't talk about it. It was a really good law podcast until we came around. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Now there's two. Now there's, yeah. Watch out for the new camera box. Shout out to Damien Carrick. Mate, yeah. you're the best, Damien. Yeah, let's have him on, all right? Why not? It could be the. Yeah, anyway. Look, ladies and gentlemen, great year. Not really. Next year, going to be even better. Hope so. Uh, you've all been great. Uh, uh, I particularly like being in your ears. I know that these guys do. We'll see you in 2021 um, with Very a special, yeah, yeah, with a special surprise. What's that? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> see you then. The Wigs would like to thank our researchers for this episode: Nuor Chirenian, Anna Kredovich, and Eric Zhang. Thanks for listening. Please like the Wigs on Facebook at the Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Hey, it's Jim Minns here. For the final time, I just want to remind you all that you can also follow us on Twitter at Weeds Podcast. And it is there that you can send us your questions and we'll answer them on the next episode. This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Minns.